0: Put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: Okay, let's do this. Excited for this one. KU headed to the Final Four after taking down Miami. Miami. 76 to 50. We're going to talk all about that, all about this team, how they got here, despite never really feeling like they were one of those teams. Frank Mason, 2017 National Player of the Year, Consensus National Player of the Year, All American now with the Wisconsin Herd and the NBA G League, is going to join the podcast. Haven't talked to Frank. I know a lot of people maybe haven't heard from Frank since he left Kansas. Jersey retirement imminent. How's he doing? What's he thinking about this team? We're going to look back on his time at Kansas and uh, maybe talk about something that's applicable here, which is the fact that a really good team that he was on in 2017 didn't make it to the Final Four, but a team that didn't have quite as much talent, didn't have quite as much buzz, the next season ended up going to the Final Four. How did that make him feel? Is there a sense of attachment once you've left when guys that you played with make it to the top of the mountain like that. We'll talk to Frank coming up here in a bit, and we'll end things with the mailbag. I'm sitting here early, early, early Monday morning not knowing exactly what the schedule is going to be like this week. I mean, I know there's going to be another episode on Wednesday. Could be a few bonus episodes. We'll see. We're working on a lot of stuff, so excited to bring you some Final Four content. And this is what it's all about because this time of year, I mean, I said it last week, every single podcast episode, every, every single game you're watching, you sort of wonder, like, is this going to be it? Because the season always comes screeching to a halt unless you're in the national championship game. And you've done this enough times. You've watched enough Kansas seasons to know that even when you do have one of those teams, one of those teams with Final Four buzz, Final Four vibes, nothing's guaranteed. So it's so difficult to try and walk that line of getting your hopes up versus uh, kind of putting a wall up to say, you know what? I'm not going to really think that anything's going to happen this year. I know nothing's guaranteed, so I'm just going to take whatever comes my way. I don't know where this team falls, so let's start with that. KU beats Miami 76-50. to The first half was ugly. Miami up by six at halftime. KU just couldn't get into any sort of a flow. Coming into the game that you knew that Miami, despite being a 10 seed, had the talent that told you that they're much, much better than a 10 seed. Charlie Moore, Chuck Moore, old friend alert has sort of settled into this really, really nice role as this pick-and-roll maestro for Miami. They like to let it fly. They're not the hottest three-point shooting team, but they stretch defenses because they've got the, the big guy, Wardenberg, who is uh, effectively a stretch five. They play five out, which you knew was going to make things difficult for David McCormick, who is not the most fleet of foot. Uh, we'll talk about him in a minute. But it, it, it was a difficult matchup for Kansas defensively. You sort of wondered, is this one of those games where Bill's going to have to go to a junk defense? Is this one of those games where maybe Mitch or even one of the lesser used big guys, KJ Adams, or Zach Clements has to get some more run? Or is it going to be the flip side where good luck defending KU down low? Because when you play five out, that means defensively you have nothing in the way of rim protection or interior defense, right? Who is going to dictate the flow of the game. And in the first half, it was all Miami. Because KU couldn't get settled into any sort of an offensive rhythm, which then made them play reactionary basketball, where they are having to react to what Miami's doing, which is why we saw for the last possession of the first half, KJ Adams came in defensively. There was this really, by the way, KJ Adams kind of shutting down Cameron McGusty in those final 24 seconds or whatever it was. Uh, one of the best defensive possessions of the game. And so if you're projecting towards the future what K.J. Adams can be for that program, go back, watch that clip on loop because it was fantastic defense for a guy his size. One point in the first half, Jalen Wilson has two fouls, so Bill Self goes to this five-guard lineup with Jalen coleman lands. It was it was Remy Martin, Duwan Harris, Christian Brown, Ochai, and Jalen coleman lands. And at that point, you sort of wondered when K.U.'s reeling a bit and you, you go, okay, I uh, got to get something going here. And then you go to this five-guard lineup that you hadn't used all season long. At that point, I kind of wondered to myself, is this really? Is this what Bill Self is going to go with, with the season on the line? A lineup that you haven't used all year long? Turns out it was, a, uh, don't know, a couple minutes when you're just trying to buy some time. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, Bill doesn't like to play guys with two fouls in the first half. I know it drives a lot of people insane. I would like to see him be a little bit more flexible there, but... It's just one of his sort of core tenets. You got two fouls in the first half, you're sitting. So KU comes out in the second half and did what I think they wanted to do to start the game, which was try to dictate the terms. And they started feeding Dave in the post. And Dave went to work, got a couple of big buckets. You can tell that his confidence gets going. You can tell that his momentum is sort of contagious throughout the rest of the team. And there was one play, it was a sequence where uh Ochai gets a steal, throws it ahead to Christian Brown, throws it down for a dunk. He starts yelling. He's happy. Then the next possession, it's tied 40 apiece. And this was maybe the turning point of the game. There were kind of two different instances here. In the first half, I think a lot of people were critical of Christian and his shot selection. And normally when you say shot selection, you're talking about guys taking bad shots. But it was the exact opposite with Christian. And this has been a theme all season long where he seems to be slow on the trigger. When he has a little bit of separation on the perimeter, it feels like he doesn't always want to fire. He does the pump, fake, and drive, pump, fake, and drive. And the way that KU runs that weave, that dribble-weave offense, the dribble handoff, you're, you're, you're basically giving the ball to the three wings, CB, Ochai, and Jalen. And you're doing this dribble-weave, and it's, it's opening up opportunities for them to do basically three things. The first one is shoot the ball. And with the exception of Ochai, that almost never happens. The second option is to drive. But why I say there's three options is because these dribble weaves, they always open up two separate options for these guys to drive. You can drive left, drive right, right? It's, It's basically a fork in the road, and there's almost always a good option. And these wings are so, so, so good at getting downhill, getting to the line, because while they're not the quickest or the most explosive, they are pretty athletic. They're strong wings, so they can absorb contact get to the rim, draw fouls, get to the line. What's made them such an effective offense this year. The problem is that when you never are a threat to shoot on those plays, right, because we've seen Jalen and Christian shoot, but a lot of times it's guys driving and then passing where or they're, they're, you're rotating the ball or they're coming off sets where they're just open and they can sort of step into a three. They can get set because they have time. It's on those split seconds where I think I may have a little bit of room. Should I shoot it? Those guys almost never shoot the ball. Jalen's a little bit better at it than Christian. And I don't think it's a mindset thing. I don't think it's a yips thing. I think Christian just technically sound, and I'm not Red Auerbach here, so I'm not going to break down the mechanics of his jump shot. I just don't think he has that, that really quick trigger that some, like a guy like Devontae had or a guy like Svi had where he can just fire with uh, just a split second or just a, a fraction of room there. He needs time. There's like some sort of little hitch in his setup that takes him an extra split second to load his shot, which is why I think a lot of times he's a little bit slow to pull the trigger. Well, in the second half, he hit a big three right in front of Bill Self, and that was like NBA range. It was three or four feet behind the line. Puts KU up three, and they never look back. KU outscored Miami 47 to 15 in the second half. And then, you know, Dave came down on maybe the next possession or a possession later, and there was an and one where he put it in. And at that point, you kind of wondered, okay, this game might be over. Because I think at that point, KU was up by 7-9. And again, they never looked back. Uh, play of the game for me, though, was a fast break. Ochai goes up for the layup, misses it. Jalen comes out of nowhere. The ball's going out of bounds. He saves it while falling out of bounds to Ochai, who jumps back inbounds in the corner, buries a three. And that was kind of the name of the game in the second half. Everything that could go right for Kansas did. Everything that could go wrong for Miami did. It was a defensive clinic. It was the best defensive basketball that KU's played all season long. And by the way, you want to look at their season-long numbers. We we always talk about that thing before the tournament. If you want to be a title contender, you need to be top 25 in adjusted offensive efficiency. You need to be top 25 in adjusted defensive efficiency. KU's 17th right now. I think they were were kind of hovering around 30 all season long, but that's how good of defense they've played. You can talk about level of competition, and that's great. We probably should. But the fact remains that you're, you, you blew Miami out yesterday. You ended up winning that game by 26 points. So this isn't a, a game where KU sort of snuck by him. And that's why basketball is 40 minutes. You can't just take the first half sample size and draw your conclusions from that. You take the game in its totality, KU held a dangerous Miami offense to 50 points and absolutely stifled them in the second half. At no point this season, now that Kansas is getting ready for a Final Four, Kansas is in the freaking Final Four. At no point this season did Kansas feel like, wherever the separation is at the top of the college basketball rankings, did it feel like they were firmly entrenched in that group? Because all season long, you knew about Gonzaga. You knew about Arizona. Uh, Kentucky was certainly in there after their beatdown at Kansas inside Allen Fieldhouse. And then I felt like there was a bit of a separation between those three teams and and Baylor. And Kansas is probably in that group, as was Auburn maybe Tennessee, maybe Iowa. I don't. Know. It, it fluctuated throughout the season. But I don't really think Kansas was ever really amongst that crop. And I don't think at any point everybody, anybody ever said that Kansas is the best team in the country. But looking at the four teams remaining between Kansas, Duke, Villanova, and North Carolina, you could make a very strong case that Kansas is the best team in the country still playing. And it's so weird as a Kansas fan because we, as we've talked about in the past, victim of comparing this team to past Kansas teams instead of comparing them to everybody else in college basketball. Kansas is a title contender almost every single year, so it's only natural to compare them to the 2018 team or the 2012 team or the 2010 team or any of those teams that that were great college basketball teams that you felt like had a chance to win it all but ultimately fell short. Because I'm sitting there in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, watching this team cut down the nets, watching the locker room celebrations, walking, watching the videos on social media of them being on the plane, coming back to Kansas, walking into Allen Field House with thousands of fans waiting there to greet them. And I'm thinking, this team, this team, this, of all the Kansas teams that fell short of winning a title, that had a chance in April to still accomplish something truly special, truly historic, this is the one that's going to do it, huh? Because all season long, we've all felt the same way, which is this is not your typical Kansas team. What is a typical Kansas team, right? Who are those teams that come to mind for you? Well, 2008's the best team that Bill Self's ever had at Kansas. They won the title. I mean, you had, think about all the future pros. If we're just talking NBA, Darrell Arthur, Brandon Rush, Mario Chalmers, Cole Aldridge, they all had successful NBA careers. And then you even had guys like Darnell and Sasha and Russell Robinson who had great careers overseas. and Sharon who was, I mean, out of the four of them, probably the most accomplished college basketball players. And they won a title. Like, they checked every single box across the board. The other teams that come to mind, 2010, two years later, that was when Cole and Sharon were one of the best duos in the country. You had Xavier Henry, who, despite the fact that he kind of gets forgotten, had a really, really efficient, impressive rookie season or freshman season. The Morris twins sort of coming into their own. You had Tyshawn. You had Elijah. You get this stable of guards. Top to bottom, loaded with great college basketball players. The very next year, you'd know Sharon and Cole. T-Rob starts playing, opening up a bigger role. This is when Marcus Morris became one of the best players in the country. You added Josh Selby. He didn't do a ton, but you had guys like Brady Morningstar and Tyrell Reed who who became really, really solid college players. Then there was a bit of a gap where a few down years, the one-and-done era starting to, starting to take over, and Bill Self, I don't know, sort of tinkering and, and trying different things in, in terms of how he's going to roster construct and, I wouldn't say it was a down patch, but they didn't really have any of those teams in about a three- or four-year span where you really felt like they were one of those. Uh, 2016 was the next team that comes to mind for me. Perry's senior year, super efficient, one of the top 15 players in college basketball. This is when Frank, Devontae, and Wayne, you had this, again, stable of guards. They could stretch the floor. They could shoot it. And then the next year, for my money, this is... This is probably the third. I would go, in order, I would go 2008, 2010, 2017 of of Bill Self's best teams at Kansas because I know some of the advanced metrics actually like the 2016 team better than the 2017 team, but in all of the um, immeasurable sort of boxes that you would want to check, 2017 had them all. They had your national player of the year in Frank Mason, your floor general, and you surrounded him with really good shooters. When you had... Devonte and Svee and LeGerald Vick. And then you had this assassin, this perfect stretch four in Josh Jackson who could do a little bit of everything. The only thing maybe that team was missing was a true rim protector. But then you look at Landon Lucas who sort of settled into his own and became this really solid rebounder, this really solid defender. That team fell short. Oregon, Elite Eight. And then 2020, we didn't get a tournament. Doke Devon Dotson, number one team in the country. Tournament was canceled, but they would have won in as the number one overall seed. All of those teams had Final Four vibes. All of those teams had national championship vibes. But only one of them, 2008, actually went to a Final Four. And notice that there are two teams, 2012 and 2018, that did go to the Final Four that aren't even mentioned. Because, don't lie, before the tournament started, you weren't expecting huge things from that 2012 team or that 2018 team. Throughout the season, there were a lot of frustrations with, can this team get it done? This team has too many deficiencies. Like 2012, um, they, their, their offense was all predicated on just feeding Thomas Robinson. And that worked a lot of times. But when Thomas couldn't get things going, things sort of started to fall apart at the seams, which is why they lost a lot of games, which is why at the beginning of the year, we saw that they were clearly outmatched against Kentucky. And I think that game stuck with a lot of people. Throughout the season, 2018, it was the exact opposite. The offense was great. You could stretch the floor. You could hit threes. You could do a little bit of everything. The problem was you weren't great at scoring inside, and you weren't great at getting stops on defense. But it didn't really matter because you could shoot your way out of any problems that you had, and that's exactly what we saw as they ran their way to the Final Four in 2018. The case in point is that there are no such thing as Final Four vibes. It's a figment of our imagination, even if they are real. Perhaps more accurately, they don't really mean anything. At no point this season did Kansas ever have Final Four vibes. No point, ever. They were never the best team. They were never really mentioned amongst being the best teams. I get it. They were a one seed, but that's about resume, and that's not what we're talking about here. They accrued a lot of impressive wins. That's the product of of playing in the Big 12, and I think Bill Self as a coach is worth, I don't know, three, four extra wins that a a normal coach wouldn't be able to get because of his ability to to just find ways to come up with winning game plans throughout the season. That wins you games in the regular season. It doesn't always mask your problems in the tournament where I think talent and athleticism becomes far more important, which is why sometimes you accrue this great resume, you get a one seed, you get a two seed, but then ultimately when March hits, sort of like last season, you see, okay, well, yeah, they're not quite on that level. This isn't Bill Self's best team. This isn't one of his top five teams at Kansas. I really don't think so. But none of that matters. This is a team that has two guys, two guys who were ranked in the top 40 coming out of high school. David McCormick. David McCormick was the top-rated player, high school player, coming out of high school. The only other guy ranked in the top 40 coming out of, uh, out of high school was Jalen Coleman-Land, and he's only been here for one year. This is a team that has one, one guy who's going like, to stick in the NBA, maybe three. Like, Christian Brown's going to get drafted. I would assume Jalen Wilson's going to get drafted. Outside of that, your guess is he's as good as mine. Not the deepest team. They aren't the most experienced. They aren't the most talented. They aren't the most well-rounded. None of it. There's nothing about this team that you'd look at and say, they're the best at blank. They're the best at X than any of Bill Self's teams at Kansas. I don't know, ultimately, what their calling card's going to be. That's one of those things you sort of do after the fact. But college basketball is an imperfect sport. Fortunately, though, the NCAA tournament is the perfect postseason. We don't always get the best team hoisting the trophy at the end of the year. Quite frankly, we, we rarely do. But that's not what we signed up for when we became college basketball fans. We just want a good product. And March Madness delivers year in, year out. I'll be damned if we don't get it more often than not. Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova in the Final Four. That is insanity. That is a great product. It's going to be on TBS, so the ratings won't be quite as high, but tickets are already through the roof, and a lot of people are going to be watching because those are brand names. That's what gets people in front of their television sets for the Final Four. I thought KU was the best team in the country in 2010 and 2017, and I thought the bracket broke perfectly for them in 2011 when all they had to do was beat an 11-seed VCU and the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four. But none of those three teams went to the Final Four. They all had the vibes. This team doesn't have the vibes. They're headed to New Orleans. So how are we going to remember this team? A lot of that depends on what happens from here. Like 2018, you got washed by Nova in the Final Four. We still remember them five years later for having a great March run. Four years later, bad math. We remember Malik Newman becoming the best player in the country for a month. We remember Svee's shot versus Duke that ultimately sent it in at overtime we remember Silvio's coming out party when Doak was dealing with that knee injury. There are memories even if you don't win it all. Same with 2012. But as of now, like as of right now, we're going to remember Remy carrying this team for two games when none of your quote-unquote star players had it, when Ochai couldn't find his shot, when Dave didn't look healthy, still doesn't look healthy. And he wasn't great on Sunday. But to me, that's still the story of Kansas during this tournament run. Uh, to steal a quote from Bill Self in 2018, all you can do is add to it. We haven't seen the best of Ochai. You had three players on the all-region team. Ochai wasn't one of them. I, I would think if I'm him, after having a National Player of the Year candidacy-type season, after having a first-team All-American-type season, like the pressure's sort of off. You've went through the bad stage. You've went through the bad phases. Now you get ready for an undermanned Villanova team after losing one of their best players to an Achilles injury. This is the longest open we've ever done, but I think it's appropriate for the final four to take a step back because no matter what happens coming up on Saturday and then if you're able to win again on Monday, it's important to appreciate the fact that you're here and understand that even though this team never felt quite right, it never felt like the team you wanted them to be, here they are, one of four remaining. And that's a damn cool thing for a team who nobody really ever expected to get here. 2017 National Player of the Year, first team All-American, legend, a guy who's going to have his number hanging in the Allen Fieldhouse rafters, I would imagine sooner rather than later. Frank Mason, now with the Wisconsin Herd in the NBA G League. It's good to talk to you, man. How you doing?
2: I'm pretty good, man. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, thank you for hopping on with me. Uh, I'm literally in the gym right now. And which is fitting because when you were at Kansas, the uh, the tales about your work ethic were uh, pretty interesting. And I think that's part of the reason why you certainly endeared yourself to to KU fans back in Wisconsin. Now with the herd where you won G League MVP a couple of years ago, uh, what is it about Wisconsin that feels like home for you? Because I look at some of the numbers, too, and it feels like it's just been a really good fit for you when you've been up there.
2: Yeah, I think just the organization, um, the coaches, the front, the front office guys, the teammates, and everyone, and just had a lot of success here for my first year, and uh, it's just always feel at home whenever I'm here.
1: Where's your game at right now?
2: Well, it's been a tough year for me, uh, honestly. I, I was out in South Bay earlier in the year, then I just got over here back to Wisconsin about uh, two and a half weeks ago. So I had a lot of injuries this year, been battling that, fighting, fucking with those, and um, you know, just just trying to stay sharp. Stay mentally prepared for, for whatever is next and, you know, just keep working.
1: I was talking to Malik a couple of weeks ago. He's with uh, Cleveland, and I was talking to him about being in the G League and sort of feeling like you're maybe knocking on the door at times of the NBA and, and getting the call-ups and then just the kind of the, the changes between going up and down. Do you feel that as well, like where you feel like you're maybe knocking on the door, or is it tough to – evaluate how close you are to maybe breaking through to the to the league.
2: Yeah, I would say it's kind of tough to to evaluate that because you got so many talented guys that that play really well in and out every night. And um, you know, it's just it's just all about the right fit and right situation and um, you know, just being prepared and Ready whenever your number is called, you know, you never know when that that could happen. So it's about, you know, staying in the moment and just working really hard, believing in yourself and um, you know, just pre- preparing for whenever your, your name and number is called for the next step.
1: How much KU do you get to watch? I know you're busy this time of year, but how, how often do you get to watch?
2: Uh, earlier in the season, I didn't get to watch much, but. March Madness. I watch every game, and, and I watched a couple games in the Big 12 tournament. I'm uh, proud of the guys. They got a lot of success so far this year, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching the next game.
1: What stands out to you when you watch them?
2: I think it's the toughness and their togetherness. Um, they execute really well on the offensive end of and out of out of timeouts. Like coach Self, always been great at that, and uh, the coach is always doing a great job. So, you know, I just love watching them.
1: Yeah. I'm curious for how much of a connection do you still feel to the program like this time of year, like the, the Kansas pride. I've talked to guys in the past who, who say that it's, it's sort of this um, this deep rooted brotherhood that you get when you come through the program and you spend a lot of time there. Do you still feel that?
2: Yeah, I always feel that. I think I'll feel that forever, but you know, sometimes it'd be tough to, to communicate and, and watch the guys and, and talk with coaches a lot because they are busy with their games and practices and, the same for me. So, you know, whenever I get a chance to speak with the coaches and some of the players, you know, it's always a good conversation and uh, I enjoy it.
1: I want to go back to sort of your start at KU. And even before that, really, because I think your, stu- your your story is really cool. And it's why a lot of people, you know, you became a fan favorite for a lot of KU fans. Um, it, the, the famous story, I'm sure you've talked about it a ton. Your first interaction with KT when he's at an event um, scouting somebody else that I think went up ended up going to USC. Um and then he watches you play. What do you remember about your first interaction with KT?
2: Uh funny guy, man. Um he saw me out in the back gym in Vegas and uh, I guess he liked what he saw and um he gave us a call like a few days after I mean afterwards the tournament and uh it was just unbelievable. You know, I, I didn't I didn't you know think that KU would offer me. Uh, I knew I was talented enough, but I just I knew they had other guys that they were recruiting, and just the way that it worked out, um, I think it all happened perfectly. And um, KT is a funny guy, and um, I love him, man.
1: How surprised were you, like, when your coach? I don't know how the interaction happened, but when the when your coach told you that Casey or Ku was calling, how surprising was it at that point, just given where you were at in your sort of recruiting trail?
2: I honestly, wasn't that surprising because. After we left the tournament, I knew that he was there, and I knew they were there for recruiting someone else. And it's a funny story because I told my friends that, um, like, I think I think Kansas is going to offer me, man. Like, And 10 minutes later, they called us was like, we want to offer you. Because I knew how good I played, and uh, I just believed that they were offering. They literally called, like, 10 minutes later. So it was crazy.
1: Okay, so describe your game for me in high school. If I was going to go back and watch tape of you at 17, 18 years old, what would I see?
2: Uh, just a tough physical player, um, deep range, could really shoot the ball. Um, was really a transition guy, scored a lot of points in transition, and a good leader.
1: Why do you think you were getting so little attention from, like, the power schools or, or the power, or power five programs, the high major schools at that point? What were coaches missing?
2: I think just my exposure. You know, I was in a small town, went to a public high school. There was only one high school in, uh, in my city, and not that many people had success from there. And I think that was mainly it, uh, a lack of exposure.
1: Did you feel any pressure when you, when you were coming into Kansas? Because I remember that year, the recruiting class was loaded. I mean, you had six guys, but also Wiggins and Bede. And Wiggins was just like a, a show in and of itself, just the media train that was kind of focusing around that and you're you weren't highly touted in terms of recruiting ranking coming out of high school so what was that like when you get to Kansas? did you have any pressure on yourself because i know from the outside it didn't seem like there was a lot of external pressure from fans media about frank mason
2: i know i, I didn't feel any pressure at all like you said i was probably the, the um the least recruited one out of all six and um but I always believed in myself and I, I knew what I was capable of. And, you know, it just showed over the years. Um, that's pretty much it.
1: Where do you think that belief in yourself comes from? Because it feels like it's a big part of why you've had so much success.
2: I think just from, you know, uh, in my household, my parents uh, just been around my brothers and sisters and just always been uh, very competitive and, you know, uh, just just hating to lose and just knowing, always knowing what I was capable of.
1: When you were having your, you know, your all American season as a senior, I, I remember the stories, everybody was kind of writing the same stuff. And you got asked about it all the time about how you weren't a point guard. When you got to Kansas, you were a scoring guard in high school and you kind of had to learn the position, which isn't easy to do. What, what was that process like? And who sort of helped you along?
2: Uh, I, I never agree with them saying that I was a scoring point guard or, uh my definition from a point guard and their definition is just two different definitions. So I always thought I was a point guard and I made plays. I scored the ball. I just, I I took whatever reads that I had on the court. So, you know, it wasn't that hard to adjust. It was more so just the system and learning coach self and his coaching staff.
1: Yeah. Okay. So if you're talking to a high school kid, who's or anybody who's going to go play point guard for KU having had done it for four years, what advice would you give them?
2: I just tell them to be coachable, you know, work really hard, um, watch a lot of film, meet with the coaches as often as you can outside of practice and during practice. And, you know, like you said, just talk with former uh, former guards that play the position and uh, most of those guys can give you a lot of good advice, you know, to help you moving forward.
1: Is that easier said than done, though? Because it seems like Coach Self is is pretty demanding, especially for the, the guard spot.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. You just have to be mentally tough and, you know, uh, willing to be critiqued and, um, you know, just just adjust to whatever he's asking for. But, you know, you just have to be willing to be challenged as well, you know. And, and in life, things are not easy. So, you know, uh, it's not easy coming in as a freshman playing on the coach self, but uh, he definitely gets you mentally and physically prepared um, for, uh, to be successful.
1: You mentioned that even in high school, you would describe yourself as a leader. Did that come about naturally, too? Like, what do you think made you so comfortable in being a leader on the court?
2: I think just, just knowing what, what's at task, you know, just uh, putting the team first and, you know, just, just super selfless, um, unselfish, and, you know, just always putting everyone before me. So, you know, that always gives us the best chance of being successful, and I think that's that where, it's, that, that where, it's, uh, that where it comes from. Excuse me.
1: Yeah, do you feel like there was a point in your Kansas career where you felt that sort of click, where all of a sudden guys did start looking to you, and you felt like you kind of had command of that locker room or or the guys on the court?
2: Yeah, for sure. I would say, uh, like in my sophomore year, uh, mid mid sophomore year, around the, towards the end of the um, Big Twelve season.
1: Now, you didn't have anybody that really, I mean, maybe you did. It didn't seem like because you were kind of thrown into the fire immediately. You were playing a lot as a freshman, and they didn't really have the point guard spot solidified. By the time you were a sophomore, you kind of got thrown into the deep end. Like it was you, and and that was your team for three straight years. How much do you think that helped just kind of learning on the fly and knowing that it was kind of on you to figure it out?
2: I think that helped. Like you said, the um, best way to learn is, you know, experience. And um, Coach Seth threw me in the fire a lot uh, my freshman year. Not as much as I wanted, but he threw me in the fire a lot. Um, I learned a lot um, at a young age, and it carried over to my sophomore year. and um, My sophomore year carried over to my junior year, and then my senior year. It was just – it was great.
1: How tough is that to sort of – to learn on the fly? You're, I mean, you're playing two games a week. You're traveling. You're doing all this stuff. You're doing class. You're having to go to school. How how tough is it to try to learn this, this role and be the leader on this team all while trying to win games and trying to compete at a high level? And at Kansas, that means competing for a national championship. It seems like there's a lot of things going on as a team while you're trying to focus on all these things individually. How tough was that to do on the fly? Yes,
2: yeah, a lot, you know, it's just life. You got to do a lot of things on the fly and you just have to be mentally tough and, you know, uh, willing to do those things. And whenever you get, you know, some free time or opportunities to, you know, go over things and learn new things or learn more things that Coach Self want that helps us make successful or uh, make us successful, you know, you just have to do those things. So learn it. learning on the go is something that I adjusted to and uh, something that I love.
1: I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but, um. It's been a few years since I've talked to you, not since you were at Kansas when I covered the team. What what do you think was the biggest reason for that massive jump from your junior to senior year? And do you look back on it any differently than you did maybe at the time when it was happening?
2: Um, not really. I don't I don't really um look back on it from the time it was I was just really just playing in a moment. I knew I was just the senior on the team. I had most experience and you know our most game experience and um, coach self gave me that ultimate green light you know more so versus my junior year we had a lot of guys that have been there before me and you know wanted to get the ball we had really good inside presence as you uh and Barry ellis and you know things like that so my senior year i just wanted to take more control uh just be more aggressive take more shots and uh, it worked out in my favor
1: Uh, How would you describe the chemistry and the relationship that you formed with Devontae over the years?
2: Oh, it was great. You know, we spent a lot of time together and uh, off the court, we had a great relationship, too. So, you know, that carries over on the court. We held each other accountable and um, we had a lot of success together. And uh, I love playing with him.
1: What's it been like watching all the success that he's had in the league and, and getting that big payday with New Orleans this year?
2: Uh, it's been super exciting. Uh, I love watching him play every chance that I get. Uh, I try to check his game out. You know, when he was with Charlotte uh, for, what, like, three years? Mm-hmm. Three years. And um, now he, he's with New Orleans, and he's getting another opportunity there. So he, but he's playing great, and uh, I'm looking forward, forward to much more success from him.
1: What was it like the year after you left watching them go to the final four in 2018? I know, I know, I'm sure you wish you were on that team, but I've talked to other guys. Um, I was talking to Scott Pollard who played in the nineties, you know, with Paul Pierce and those guys and, and they never made it to the final four. But in 2008, when KU won it all, he said that he felt and he thanked Bill self because he felt like a sense of attachment, like, thanks for winning it for all the guys who didn't get a chance to get there. Did you feel any sort of attachment to that team the next year with uh, all those guys that you'd played with when, when they went to the Final Four?
2: Yeah, most definitely. Like I said, uh, I had a couple guys on the team that I played a few years with. And, uh, I think I was most excited for uh, for Devontae and uh and, and, Sfee, and, and Coach Steph, too, and the staff. So it was great to see them make it to the Final Four. I wish they could have you know won it all.
1: Well, Frank, I appreciate the time, man. Um, it's good to catch up with you. I know a lot of KU fans are, are still watching you afar and uh, admiring you from afar. I got to ask you, though, before you go, um, when's the Jersey retirement coming? Has uh, KU given you any indication? Because you know it's happening eventually.
2: Yeah, I know it's happening, but uh, I haven't really uh, spoke to Coach Self or Coach Townsend about it, but I'm pretty sure it's going soon.
1: If, uh, if they're able to go to New Orleans, any chance you're going to be able to make it down there? Um, when is that? it would be next weekend next weekend
2: yeah yeah well our season end on april 2nd so i think i'll have a chance to go
1: That's t- that'd be two days before the title the title's yeah, on april I'm 4th sure.
2: most definitely
1: i'll be there all right man well uh i hope it happens i know everybody around these parts are hoping for it too but uh thanks again for the time frank i really appreciate it man yes sir thank you nick appreciate you Okay, I went really long on the open, so I'll keep things relatively quick here on the mailbag, knowing that we're going to do another one of these, maybe two. There's a little Easter egg for you before uh, KU takes on Villanova in the Final Four on Saturday. So let's get to the first question. What is the strategy against Nova? Go inside to Dave or try to get out in transition? I think it's the latter, especially considering they will be shorthanded. Yes, so the, the headline for Nova is that Justin Moore, who is uh, averaging 15 points per game this season, He is one of their starting guards is out after rupturing his Achilles in Villanova's elite eight win over Houston. And that's a massive loss for Nova, not just because of what he brings to the table, but because of the lack of depth that they have behind him, as is the case with most final four teams. Nova doesn't use their bench, but they take it to an extreme level. They're basically playing six guys. So you take one of them out of the equation you're either going to have to put more pressure on your starting five, which now you have to replace him in the lineup. And they don't have an obvious candidate to do that. Or you're, I mean, I mean, or you're going to have to bring in somebody who hasn't been playing a significant role. And I don't think that's what you do in the final four. So what I think that Nova is going to try and do here is they already start to quote unquote bigs. Um, you it's it's kind of hard to explain because they're not they're not bigs when you think about Eric Dixon at six eight and Brandon Slater at six seven. I mean Dixon is a legit big, uh, Slater is more of a, a four. But now you are going to have to bring in Caleb Daniels, who's a guard that's already playing starter like minutes. You insert him into the starting lineup instead of Justin Moore, which I guess piece for piece that makes sense. Then you have no bench. Like I, I don't know who Nova is going to bring in. They rank, I'm going to look real quick, on the fly, 323rd in bench minutes so far this year. You're effectively going to have to ask all five starters to play 38-plus minutes. I mean, seriously, you don't have any sort of rotation when you don't have that sixth guy. If there's anybody who can figure it out, it's Jay Wright. Like, the next man up sort of mentality, like, he's really damn good at it. So I'd imagine... He'll figure something out. But that's a massive, massive blow because what Villanova likes to do is shoot a bunch of threes. Are you surprised? Right? We saw it in 2016. We saw it in 2018. They want to stretch the floor. They want to shoot threes. And Justin Moore behind Archie Diakono, not Archie Diakono, Colin Gillespie. There is actually an Archie Diakono on the roster. But, I mean, tell me that, tell me that Colin Gillespie and Ryan Archie Diakono don't look a little bit alike. Uh, Justin Moore has shot 225 threes this year. He's not a knockdown shooter. I mean, he's about average, 36% on the season. But you shoot 225, that's second on the team. You don't replace that. You don't, and you especially don't replace that by playing one of your big guys more minutes. If I'm just going back to the Houston game, Eric Dixon played 25, Brandon Slater played 32. So, Caleb Daniels, who's the guard off the bench, who's likely going to come in and start in place of Justin Moore. He's already playing 35 minutes. So you can't really increase his workload. You're just going to have him start the game. You got to get those minutes somewhere else. And I would imagine that means Villanova is going to have to end up going bigger. Uh, Their defense isn't great. They've played outstanding in the tournament. I mean, that shouldn't come as much of a shock because look at what Kansas is doing. Their defense has come alive as well. There should be, should be an opportunity Uh, for Candace to get inside and score against this defense. I would say this, though. What's really interesting about Villanova is that they allow a ton of threes. They rank 306th in the country in three-pointers allowed. So uh, whatever their defensive style is, and despite the fact that they play small, and so they have a ton of guards out there, they're allowing teams to shoot a lot of threes, yet teams are only shooting 30% from three. And that would tell me that That is more happenstance or luck than anything else. If you're allowing teams to get open looks from three, yet they aren't hitting them, something doesn't compute there. And for KU, who hasn't necessarily been the hottest team from three, I mean, this was five of 14 against Miami. Now, they didn't need to to take a ton of outside shots because they got whatever they wanted inside. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out versus Villanova, who also, by the way, is one of the slowest teams in the country. So this isn't a run-and-gun team. They don't want to get out and push the tempo and, and jack up a bunch of shots themselves. They want to slow things down, and they're going to get a shot on almost every possession because of their solid guard play. Uh, they don't turn the ball over a ton. So they're getting shots. They get to the foul line, and uh, they knock down their free throws. So, uh, I'll, I'll watch a little bit more. I'm going to go back and watch some, some Villanova to have a better sense of maybe how they're going to play. But again, it's going to be tough knowing that you're without one of your best players heading into the Final Four and not really having a great... Backup plan. Next question. Would this 2022 team beat the 2017 team that didn't make the Final Four? I would say if those two teams lined up, I would think the 2017 Kansas team would be favored by three. Is that fair? And maybe this is just nostalgia taking over here because there's probably not as much of a a statistical difference between those two teams, but that team just checked every box. Frank Mason, your national player of the year, you couldn't take him out of games because he's the point guard. Like that's the difference between having an All American at point guard and an All American at wing. And this isn't a knock on Ochai necessarily; it's just the position that he plays. When you're a point guard and you have the ability to get past guys or put the ball in the deck, create your own shot, it's much more difficult to take you out of a game. Now Ochai is also six six and is a, an elite athlete, so. That helps him find a way into games. But with Frank, there's only so much you could do to limit his impact on the game. And then he had a great supporting cast around him. I mean, when you put a a National Player of the Year candidate, a point guard, and then you put a sharpshooting combo guard like Devontae out there, you put another sharpshooter in Sfi, you've got this perfect stretch four in Josh Jackson. The only thing they were missing was that elite big, but Landon over the, the course of the year became super, super efficient at what he does. Like, he shot 63% from the field. He was one of the best rebounders in the country. He just knew his job. He knew what his job was. He was great at sealing off defenders and creating driving lanes. That team had this perfect sort of symmetry. And then they ran into a scorching hot Oregon team in the Elite Eight that ended their season. But that's, again, like, we, we always say you make your legacies in March, and that's true, but that's not necessarily one game is not indicative of who you were as a team. But so the fact that this Kansas team is going to the Final Four does not make them better. That was kind of what the whole open was about than that 2017 team. So if these two teams were to line up, I'd probably go with the 2017 team. Because you know why? I'm not betting against Frank Mason and Devontae Graham and Josh Jackson. It's as simple as that for me. All right, we're going to get more into the Villanova matchup coming up later on this week. We'll hopefully uh, be able to break that down in a little bit more depth and, and try to get an idea of what exactly Nova is going to do against Kansas without Justin Moore, who is one of their top two or three players. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Frank Mason for joining us. We'll be back later this week. We got some more great guests lined up, so uh, excited for it. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. It's Waving the Week.